Welcome to the First Things Podcast. I'm Rusty Reno, and this is the Editor's Desk Podcast. And guess what? I am at my desk, and I'm the editor. And I have with me Shadi Hamid, who uh, wrote a very fine piece for the October 2022 issue of First Things, How Modernity Swallowed Islamism. Th uh, uh, thanks for being on the podcast. Hi, Rusty. Thanks for having me. And you, uh, you are, um, I didn't realize that you've got a position at Fuller Theological Seminary in addition to your, uh, I knew you, you, you had a, uh, a position at the Brook at Brookings. So when did the Fuller thing start? Yes, that's actually fairly recent. Um, as of this past January, it's pretty exciting. Um, I, I, it does seem that I'm the first Muslim scholar to be hired by an evangelical seminary in, I guess, U.S., I mean, in history, well, at least in Fuller Seminary and other seminaries' history. So um, that's it. So it's I'm doing this project with an evangelical theologian, Matthew Kamink. And oh, yeah. what we're, mm-hmm. yeah. So what we're doing is we're, as part of this broader project, is we're trying to draw on our respective traditions, Christianity and Islam, and to actually make the case that religion isn't a problem. We're going back to religious sources can actually strengthen American democracy and really any democracy that is struggling with deep difference. We think that um, secularism and liberalism have their fundamental weaknesses. So we have to, you know, think about what we can do and religion helps there. So th- that's... Um, that's the general thrust of what Matthew and I are doing. And, and so basically I'm half, half time at Brookings, half time at Fuller and mixing it up a little bit. So ha- happy to do that. Yeah. Oh, great. Well, fantastic. So let's jump into the piece. You start out by saying the Middle East may be ahead of its time. How so? So the, the Middle East ha- dealt with a lot of the issues that we as Americans are dealing with now. Um, I was living in the Middle East during the Arab Spring, and in that period, there were these foundational debates over the role of religion in public life, the nature and meaning of the state, and what it means to be a nation. What what does it mean to be Egyptian? What does it mean to be Tunisian? And these Mm -hmm. are founding questions, really. If you want to build a polity, you have to be able to answer some of those questions. Now, when I was in the Middle East at that time, I thought this was a Middle Eastern thing. And I thought, oh, good, you know, this is a contrast to America because the United States is an advanced democracy. And um, our debates aren't foundational in the same way. I mean, that was back then when there were controversies over Obama's tan suit. I mean, young people may not remember that we had really frivolous debates back then. But when I came back to the U.S. and entering the the Trump era, there was this fundamental shift where we were no longer really focusing on policy. We were focusing on the future of the republic. That's what the last two elections have been about. I mean, no one was going side by side and reading Biden's specific policy proposals on taxes versus Trump's Trump's, and then, oh, deciding based on that kind of rational assessment, it was much more an instinctual thing about, you know, what it means to be an American. So these are the so-called who we are questions. And apparently we as Americans no longer know who we are. 
and the Middle East offered a preview of what some of those debates can look like and how, you know, democracies can fall apart if there isn't some kind of settlement between opposing sides. And in that Middle Eastern debate, one of the key players was um, and remains uh, Islamism. Um, uh, why ism? I mean, Islam is obviously this multifaceted, complex religious tradition. But it, what is what do we make when we make an ism? What do you what that bespeaks? Uh, I guess a political project. Yeah. So Islamism is the broad definition is Islamism is about how to make Islam or Islamic law central in public life and politics. That's what Islamists are trying to bring about. And the ism part comes because, first of all, Islamism is distinct from Islam as a broader faith tradition. And what the Islamist, what the kind of emerging Islamist groups do um, in the first half of the 20th century, they're doing something quite innovative. They're basically taking Islam and making it into a political project. They even call it that. Um, they, there's a phrase in Arabic that translates as the Islamic project. That's what mm. they say that they're doing. And what does a project mean? Project means that you're applying, you're trying to take ideas and apply them in a very particular way in, in public and political life. And that is different because if we look at the pre-modern era, no one was really doing that because the role of Islam was unquestioned. It was the overarching moral and legal and religious architecture. So it wouldn't have made sense to say, we want Islam to play a public role because it was already doing that and no one really had an alternative. This was before liberalism existed. This is before secularism existed. And it, I think it's hard sometimes for people to remember that the availability of ideologies, um, you know, several centuries ago was quite different. And this is so basically that what makes Islamists and Islamism relevant, not just obviously to the Middle East, but also to Americans who are trying to make sense of their own situation is that you know, I make the argument that Islamism was Islamists themselves were carrying the banner of anti-liberalism before anti-liberalism was cool. So <laughs> we, we, yeah, so we we have some precedent. Other people have tried this, and we can look at the results. And I think some of those results are are instructive for for us as observers. You. I mean, I guess maybe the white wave characterizing the, but the, the Islamists ran into a problem, and I guess this is my way of kind of summing what, what up what you 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 argue here, is that Sharia is a culture building instrument, and the Islamists wanted to turn it into a state building instrument, um, and that that translation, that translation. As is, I think probably you could say has also been the case in in um, in the Christian context as well that that translation often subordinates or did in fact subordinate the the culture building element to a political project, and so the exigencies of running a modern state became more determinative than the Sharia itself. Sharia had to fit, in other words, into the framework of modern state building. 
Exactly. And Sharia isn't something that is codified. I mean, oftentimes people will simplify and emphasize certain criminal punishments. But if, if you actually look at Islam's legal corpus, it's basically decentralized. Um, the state itself, which was not particularly powerful in the pre-modern era, there weren't the same the same ability to surveil and and build big bureaucracies and and so forth. So the state wasn't present in people's lives the way that it is now. I mean, so back then, your local judge or your local jurist that was your relevant point of contact if there was some Islamic legal issue. So in that sense, you can't find Sharia in any particular place. But if we talk about law in the modern context, it's about systematizing. It's about having clear statutes and who implements those statutes, a state. And this is where, um, you know, Islam was not designed for the modern nation state. So trying to fit an Islamic approach or an Islamic project within those confines, you end up coming up with something that is a little bit incoherent and disorienting. And I think that the state itself is a, is a bigger problem insofar as we as moderns, we don't really know how to think beyond the state. And you know, there's no, there's very few people left in the world who were alive in the pre-state period who were living under, um, you know, various multi-ethnic, multi-religious empires. I mean, the last caliphate, the Ottoman caliphate was formally abolished in 1924. So really since then, and, um, and certainly now, uh, when you talk to people about how to organize politics, everyone falls back on the state. And that is a limiting perspective for a couple of reasons. I mean, one one reason is that it raises the stakes of politics considerably. If the mm. state is so powerful, then whoever's participating in, in the democratic process will really want to win. And they worry that if the other side wins, that could be an existential threat. Does that sound familiar? Yes, because, you know, we're dealing with that right now right. in the U.S., um, and the state becomes the locus of cultural and social change. You think that if you, you take over the state apparatus, then you can realize your ideological vision. And that, to me, is a dangerous way of thinking about politics, this kind of the state as a means to these other ideological ends. But unfortunately, it's hard to think of an alternative because the state does matter. And if you do want to uh, change the way things are, you can't ignore the role of the state. I guess it's a paradox of liberal modernity that it originated as a project to uh, separate, if you will, the function of you know deliberation about um, state action from the passions of theology and religion. But the effect over time has been to make control of the state the be-all and end-all, and therefore heighten um, political passions, even as it's marginalized theological passions. So, yeah. Well, you you also point out that uh, the the adaptation or or modernization of Islam is not just an attempt to adapt Sharia to the task of modern governance, but also there's a broad uh, tradition of 20th century tradition of uh, Muslim apologetics that yeah. that you know, to show that it's wonderful. I don't know this tradition at all, but it's to show that 
Islam is the religion, true religion of reason. It's more practical. It's more functional. It kind of reminded me of in the 19th century in the Catholic, there's long, after the Reformation, there was 300 years of polemics against how Protestants are wrong. You know, they're heretics. It's a theological argument. In the 19th century, after the French Revolution created, um, you know, overturned so many aspects of European society, the 19th century, a lot of Catholics shifted to a sociological argument about the superiority of, of Catholicism, that Protestantism leads to anarchy and, you know, the rise of individual willfulness. But Catholicism, uh, it can promote a well-ordered society, respect for authority and so forth. <laughs> so there's a kind of interesting parallel in Islam where you get apologists for Islam that want to say that it's not so much that Islam is preferred theologically as that is, is, it is just, you know, the better way to organize society or the most likely to promote the good things that we see in modernity. So it, yeah, it's, it's it, a it, fascinating it, uh, parallel. I think it's probably pretty widespread. There's probably a Hindu equivalent, I would imagine, Neo-Confucian yeah, right. equivalent. I think that's right. We define ourselves by our opposites. That's how we come to know who we are. And so if you're a Protestant, you can define yourself that way because you know what the alternatives are. And to be Protestant makes sense only in relation to the fact that Catholicism is there. So I think that um, that is what inevitably happens with ideologies, even if we're trying to build something that is affirmative and not reacting to others, we can't help but define ourselves relative to other things. That's the human experience. We're comparing and contrasting. So in this sense, Islamism cannot exist without its opposite, i.e. secularism. The two go together. And Islamism is actually strongest in Muslim-majority contexts when there's a strong secular elite. Where there isn't a strong secular elite, like in Indonesia and Malaysia, Islamist parties are weaker. That's oh, not an accident. Yeah. But, you know, on, on this tradition of Muslim apologetics... It's fascinating because um, it tells a different story about what Islam, what Islamism is in the 20th century. I think that the popular perception is that Islamists are retrograde, backwards, anti-modern, and all that stuff, all these negative things. And I argue in the piece that Islamism is actually better understood as an expression of modernity. It is intensely modern. And in fact... Islamist parties and movements like the Muslim Brotherhood, their intellectual lineage comes from a group in the early 20th century, a kind of, not a particularly organized group, but a kind of intellectual orientation. They were called the Islamic modernists. That's how they're known in the scholarly literature. And it's no mistake, they were, they were modernists. And that's, that's what led to a lot of what followed. But basically the idea here was to make Islam as reasonable and rational as possible because they were reacting to a specific threat. There were missionaries, Christian missionaries throughout the Middle East. There were rising secular elites that were questioning basic premises about Islam's role in public life. And there was this perception that Islam was, the religion even more broadly, was superstitious and it was, it was a failure basically. 
And so there was this insecurity in debates with Christian missionaries. So these Muslim apologists, they wanted to find a way to respond effectively. So they emphasized in a very almost technical way that they de-emphasized the otherworldly aspects, the Sufi components of Islam, uh, issues around saints and, and, and that sort of thing. And they really tried to say that if, if there is a problem in politics, Islam is the solution. I mean, that's the well-known phrase of the Muslim Brotherhood. Islam is the solution. They mean that in a particular way, that Islam actually offers tangible solutions to modern life, and this is the better way to organize politics. So you see these apologists basically um, saying that Christianity is too mystical, it's not rational, the Trinity doesn't make any sense. Islam provides this alternative. And then you have Islamist movements like the Muslim Brotherhood, who basically take some of those ideas and try to operationalize them. And they're saying that Islam is a practical religion. In fact, the founder of the Muslim Brotherhood, one of his well-known tracts was titled, Are We Practical People? Question mark. Of course, the answer was yes. So, um, so basically, the Muslim Brotherhood is a movement that tries to gather people in this big tent organization, and they want to get things done. They're not talking about theology. They're not talking about Islamic philosophy. They're talking about what is practical and what is effective. And they thought that was a more productive way of approaching politics instead of getting stuck in obscure theological debates that had no bearing to the modern era. And this, this, this uh, evolves then in recent decades into an argument that effectively, you could say, the Islamist parties are saying, um, the secular elites have failed you, uh, we can deliver utilities more effectively than they can. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, which is essentially the liberal promise. I mean, the liberal <laughs> promise is, you know, let's set aside questions of eternal salvation. This is a more, uh, this is a, a less conflict-driven, more rational way for us as a society to, to agree about how to distribute the temporal goods of life. Um, yeah. So, so when these Islamist parties in in recent decades, but you know, also particularly during the Arab Spring more recently they actually end up being part uh, either um, leading governments or being part of coalition governments in several countries. And they find themselves in a challenging situation of actually having to apply their ideas. I mean, they had, they had assumed that they would just be in the opposition indefinitely. No one really saw the air <laughs> coming. So when you don't think you have a chance to rule, you don't actually, you can, you know, you have these big ideas and then you find out that the state is very constraining and that the state has a logic of its own. And then in the kind of battle between Islamism and the state, the state tends to win because the state is this big, overwhelming, bloated thing. And we don't realize how, how um, all encompassing modern states are. And, you know, I, I suppose people can make similar arguments about what Trump and, the you know some you know right wing populists who come to power in various contexts find similar problems, but you know the Islamist party yeah, drain the swamp. I always thought that that was uh, at 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 best 
a utopian illusion, delusion, and at worst, merely a cynical manipulation of people's yeah. uh, sentiments. Because exactly. there's no way that we're going to, at least in the foreseeable future, diminish the scale and scope of the modern administrative state. I, I don't see it as as really a uh, possible. It's kind of paradoxical. The public seems to resent it, but then in turn demands all the services it provides. Yeah, yeah. And, it, you know, it's interesting to make these comparisons because the term deep state is a Middle East import. Right. You know, I don't know if Steve, you know, Steve Bannon and others who popularize it in the American lexicon were totally aware of it, but in Turkey in particular, but also Egypt. And um, basically the idea there is whoever wins election still has to contend with the fact that all the other layers of the state are basically opposed to them. Then how do you actually run things? And the Muslim Brotherhood dealt with this in 2012 and 2013. And that's where, you know, you have some Islamist parties, the most quote unquote progressive Islamist party around is in Nahda in Tunisia. And I mentioned that particular case in the article because it was fascinating when I was spending time with some of their leaders a few years back and they were trying to dilute their Islamism. They wanted to present themselves to other Tunisians, but also to the international community, the IMF, the World Bank, the Obama administration as being moderate and friendly and fluffy and nice and all of that. And there is a lot of pressure to present yourself in that way if you want to impress Westerners, because what do Westerners want to see? They want to see de-emphasizing religion because they're not comfortable with religion playing a public role. So Ennahda did that. And then I would ask their leaders, um, so, okay, fine. You're not going to be as Islamist. You're not focusing on those ideological things. You want to focus on bread and butter issues. Fine. That makes a lot of sense. But then how are you distinctive from the other parties? Because the other parties have an advantage when it comes to delivering goods because they were actually in government in the previous regimes. They actually have economists who are Western trained. Your party doesn't have Western trained economists. So, I mean, why would you be better? And basically, one and not the leader who I quote in the piece, he brought up, I thought, what I thought was not a particularly impressive example, but the short version of it is he said, look, he used the example of Hamas and Palestine. He said, um, uh, when, you know, if Hamas was in power, if they got 100 dinars, they would only steal 10 and they would use 90 for the people. The secular faction, Fatah, the one of Yasser Arafat and Mahmoud Abbas, when they're in power, they get 100 dinars and they steal 90 of it and only keep 10 for the people. That was literally the example that he gave me. But the idea here, first of all, it's unimaginative. If that's all you can really offer, that you're going to be less corrupt and you're going to steal less money and therefore citizens will get more goods. Is that really, does that really speak to the gravity of the moment. In in any of these countries, there are really fundamental, the debates are so foundational and so big and to go so small and so technocratic. And that's actually something similar to what I worry about with, you know, a fellow liberals here in the US who talk about classical liberalism and modern liberalism. And we can maybe talk some more about some of those aspects. But when they look at the crisis of American politics, they offer technocratic fixes, little policy uh, policy reorientations 
And I just don't know there. What do you do about that lack of imagination? So I think in the case of Tunisia, just to finish that point, um, they lost support. Um, they lost enthusiasm from their own base and they started actually doing worse after they diluted their Islamism. And maybe that's good for us as Westerners because we don't want Islamists to do so well in elections in the Middle East. But, you know, for them, it's an interesting internal debate. If you go too much in that technocratic direction, then what makes you different? And what is politics and party politics specifically except defining yourself as distinctive? And, you know, every party is saying that we are not the other party and we particularly have that issue here. So there's a lot there that I think is relevant. The, the One of the leitmotifs, certainly at the end of the of the piece, is the kind of lose-lose that the Islamists are in. Um, that is to say, if you, they, they claim to present really a fundamental new way of, you know, the, they promise the voters, we're going to go in a different direction. Uh, but they raise expectations, but when they're in power, as you say, the constraints of the modern state are so severe that they really can't deliver much more than, you know, minor alterations in the regime. Um, and so they're bound to disappoint their core supporters at the same time as they're offending or frightening people who are more moderate. Um, so there's nothing worse than frightening moderate voters while being unable to do anything more than do the moderate things. Yeah, <laughs> it's yeah, like the exactly. worst of both so, worlds. Yeah, they're, they're stuck in this kind of no man's land of politics. And uh, this is always a challenge for ideologically oriented parties is no matter what they do, no matter how moderate they become, they're still going to be seen as a threat because they are still Islamists. I mean, that is part of their identity. And to be an Islamist means, at least in theory, that you would like to see a, a real alternative to modern liberal assumptions. But the problem is with Islamists, they it is very, and this applies, I think, to any illiberal or anti-liberal group or, or, or party, it's very hard to come up with genuine alternatives to the status quo. And I think, you know, um, I wouldn't want to live under an, an Islamist government or Catholic integralist government, but I think that what these, what these groups understand, they got something right, which is they understood there was a fundamental weakness to liberal presumptions about politics and the illusion of state neutrality that the, the diagnosis has a lot to lend uh, a lot to lend it itself uh, to and but the problem is the the solution isn't quite there the solution is lacking because it is fundamentally hard to do this and well, also that is under, yeah. underestimating the appeals of secular liberal organization of a polity uh, in other words, I, I agree with you. You know, you could say critique of uh, of the of liberal liberalism broadly understood, kind of a it's just spiritually unsatisfying. We call it that, or it, it yeah. has a tendency to flatten life. And I think a lot of people intuitively sense that there's something wrong with that. But but it 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 has been in the modern era really quite successful <laughs> at delivering utilities and maintaining social peace and, and these other goods that 
that uh, are not to be sneezed at. Um, so there's a kind of, as I read it, uh, at the end of a sort of complex wistfulness in your final paragraphs, <laughs> as you uh, you sort you you say you do want to live under a liberal democratic regime, but you also don't want it to be the only possibility for humanity. You don't want to live in the end of history, to use the Francis <laughs> Fukuyama formulation. Yeah, yeah, I am a little bit torn. And I think that in some <laughs> ways, uh, first of all, Fukuyama's essay and, and then book were misunderstood in important ways. But even if you take the kind of general understanding, oh, you know, liberalism is the final endpoint, that simplified version still has some truth to it in the sense that liberalism is still dominant. And, you know, Fukuyama actually mentions in, in the original essay that one of the potential contenders is Islam. So he understood that Islam might have some of this um, appeal as an alternative, but he made the obvious point that Islam is limited because not everyone can subscribe. You have to convert to Islam to really fully take on the political implications of it. So obviously it's not going to win over the whole world. Uh, you know, so, but, but I think that liberalism, it is the paradox that you point to that I think a lot of us both love and hate, or maybe, maybe to make that less, you know, like and dislike liberalism simultaneously. And we're always wrestling with that. We know that liberalism has been pretty good. And, you know, me as an American Muslim born and raised here, I'm so thankful that I'm American and that my parents immigrated here, you know, because I think actually this is one of the best places in the world to be a Muslim, just in terms of having the freedom to express Islam in any way that you want without government intervention. Everywhere in the Middle East, there are ministries of religious affairs that are designed to control religious knowledge and production. And these are even ostensibly secular regimes. So I'm not even talking about Islamists here. So there's something wonderful about living under a liberal state. But at the same time, I feel it. I mean, I don't know, uh, I don't know, Rusty, if you feel it, but I think a lot of us feel that something isn't quite right. And that's why we see an epidemic of loneliness, mental illness, depression, you name it. There is a crisis right now. Liberalism takes us only so far, and now we're sort of lost. And we're trying to think, well, what next? And there is no obvious answer to the what next. And I think that if you push people and you say, okay, you're complaining about liberalism, you know, be specific about your alternative. I think that it's easy to fall back on symbolic things. Um, so, you know, some, some Catholic authors uh, make, I think, a reasonable argument that, you know, um, you know, having, having um, Sabbath legislation that, you know, su Sundays, most stores and restaurants would be closed on Sunday and, and that sort of thing. Other examples like that, that are important symbolically, perhaps, but don't actually speak to foundational questions about how American politics is organized. And maybe that's fine, because I don't know if I want to see the full-blown alternative laid out in a lot of detail. Some of it I might not like or appreciate. But um, so I don't know where that leaves us. Um, liberalism is great, but we're also unhappy. And we're afraid of trying out alternatives, because at least we know what liberalism is. And we have 
some freedom. But like when I look around myself right now here in DC, I know that basically I have a lot of room to do what I want without worrying about the state. Maybe it's gotten worse compared to previous eras in American history and the, and the liberal state is becoming more aggressive in various ways. And number of authors and first things have made that argument effectively, but still compared to what I know in the Middle East, this feels free. And do you want to mess with that? You know, Charles Taylor and uh, formulates this notion of the imminent frame which he argues is the um, you you can't get outside of it as a late modern person. You, you're 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 enclosed in the imminent frame, and I got to the end of your piece and 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 saw that this is a kind of case study of the power of what you might call the liberal frame, or the 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 secular not liberal because obviously many of these countries in the Middle East are not liberal by our standards, but maybe it's the secular statist frame of which, uh, of which, as you point out, if that's going to be our frame, secular statism, I definitely want it to be liberal. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So it, this kind of, but it's the power of the frame that you, you think it's, it's a very, very paradoxical because of course it promises freedom. But if the frame is that powerful, then how free are we really, at least how free are we in terms of our political imaginations? And so you, you're sort of saying, well, a little bit of freedom here to dream <laughs> about, but, um, but, uh, uh, but I guess a cautionary note there that um, don't, don't kid yourself because there were a lot of dreamers in late 20th century the Middle East, and when they came to power, they've discovered that the secular status frame is powerful, powerful indeed. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And it really defeated them. It defeated their dreams. Is that fair? Characters I think it's fair to say, yeah. In the case of the Arab Spring, the Muslim Brotherhood, and these other Islamist parties that uh, were in government, um, now you look at it, and I think that it's not a permanent failure, but for now, these groups are in a, in a very weak position. It's not just that the state constrained them, but also that the state defeated them. Ultimately, in the case of Egypt, for example, there was a military coup in 2013 against the democratically elected Brotherhood government. So the Brotherhood was briefly in power. And enough people said that they weren't willing to live with that democratic outcome. They said democracy, and many of my relatives had this position, my Egyptian relatives, who said, Shadi, you come as an outsider. You're American. You come here and you're doing your research in Egypt and interviewing people and you tell us about democracy. But democracy is nice in theory, but we have to live with the consequences of democracy in practice. And if it means that there's a yeah, risk. Yeah, James Madison was very skeptical about democracy <laughs> as well, as we know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah and, and but their argument, I think, was p perhaps less intellectually developed, which is if there is if there are free elections, the parties we don't like will do better than us. And we're not willing to live under that. And if that means repressing them and even killing them through a military coup and various uh, massacres that happened subsequently. But wait a minute, let's back up. Your relatives yeah. were not just saying, we don't want to live under them. They were making a normative claim. This will be bad for our country, and it'll be bad for the people even who voted for them, most of the people who voted for them. Is that, don't they think that? They I think mean, I think that, that you know, Madison and, you know, we have all these mechanisms to stymie the popular will. But I think the founders, it wasn't just because they wanted to preserve 
uh, it was in part because they wanted to preserve the prerogatives of the of the property owning classes, but I think there was also that they they were worried that uh, the kind of social instability that the popular will can create if it's if it's not if it's not restrained in many ways. Yeah, yeah, I think I'm that's sorry, right. I don't want to. No, know, no, no. It's a good point. Um, no, no. It's a, you know, it's a, it's an interesting question how people develop their their kind of skepticism of democracy. I mean, not to get into too much detail about my relatives, but I would say that a lot of it was preserving their own interests. Yeah. Maybe they would also have a more general argument that, oh, the people who vote for these Islamist parties, they're suffering under false consciousness. They don't know what's good for them. The pious masses can't be trusted to rule themselves. And it's interesting when I hear anti-Muslim arguments that are based that Muslims aren't ready for democracy, that sort of thing. That is very similar to the arguments I hear from secular elites in Egypt and the broader Middle East. They say almost to the letter, we aren't we aren't ready for democracy. Mm. Um, so I think it's worth uh, and I think that when I came back to the U.S., you know, during the Trump era, when I saw what um, what liberals and, and, and Democrats were saying when Trump won, I thought to myself, it's not exactly the same. Before. <laughs> yeah, yeah I, you know, that um, the outcomes of democracy are dangerous and Trump voters did not know what was good for them and we should help them find ways to come to the right conclusion. Right. I mean, that's ultimately the liberal promise is that with enough education, with enough information, with enough awareness, everyone with their rational faculties will be able to um, converge on a reasonable way of thinking and living. And I think this sort of um, this elevation of reason, I think, has come under a lot of uh stress in our own country because we see how that can be used against opposition you know when during the whole covid debates oh listen to the science this is the rational answer this is what you this is what you do if you have the right information and anyone who is irrational is an enemy so i think there there's there's always that risk of taking some of these ideas of we know better than the masses and then we end up having, you know, very, very destructive outcomes in the case of Egypt, a military dictatorship. You know, thankfully, that hasn't happened. Nothing of that sort has happened in, in you know, in, in Western democracies thus far. But the fact that people are worried about civil war and potential authoritarianism or actual authoritarianism, um, you know, uh, we have to be careful. And I think maybe one one takeaway is that there should be a lack of certainty when we approach politics because of this complex context that we're in, because we're being pulled in these different directions that we like liberalism, but we also don't like liberalism. We don't love the state, but we also realize that we want the state to give us things that we like. We're All of us are incoherent in some way. And I think just being more self-aware about it um, might be at least one very small step. Um, I wish I had a better answer, but that's why I end the piece on this note of wistfulness. <laughs> I like the freedom to imagine. Like you said, I've, I, that, that even that phrase is, I think, a really good one, the freedom to imagine. That's different than a lot of other freedoms because people don't always realize that they have that freedom that's available to them. 
And um, but we have it, and I think it's worth it's worth it to continue to think about ways that we can think beyond our current constraints. We I might not like the results, you may not like the results, but I think that human beings should be encouraged to do it, even if some of the outcomes are are disturbing to us. The I've long argued that you can only vote for what you can imagine. And so the politics of the imagination turns out to be more important than the politics of politics. Um, well, thanks so much. It was, a, as I say, a really marvelous piece. And um, I'm just so delighted that we were able to publish it. Uh, it's in the October 2022 issue, How Modernity Swallowed Islamism. Shadi, thanks for your time. Thanks so much. Great to be with you. 